Todd. Natalie Carmel, and, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. We probably are going to work on a 25-minute time frame instead of a 30-minute. That's, that's plenty. Okay. Believe me, you don't want to have a, a, lawyer, awesome. a lawyer talking at you for any longer than that. No, well, we can cut it down to four <laughs> since you've just said you're a lawyer. I'm Todd Lyons. I'm Natalie Crandall. And I'm Aaron Scholl. And this is the Innovate on Demand podcast. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you very much. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? I work for the Centre for International Governance Innovation based in Waterloo, Ontario. Uh, And what we are is a public policy research institute. People call us a think tank. And so what we do is um, hire the smartest people that we can to work on some of the world's most pressing public policy challenges at the international level. And um, my topic today at the conference was on uh, cyber, cyberspace, uh, cybersecurity, and data governance. And so you couldn't get a more complicated set of issues that's more important than these. And so this is an area in which my organization is working. So when I think about cybersecurity or, or cyberspace, there's a couple of immediately apparent observations. Um, the first is that we're seeing a breakdown in trust a breakdown in trust in the system. And what do I mean by that? There's two different levels where we see this stuff. Uh, one is at the individual level. And this is I mean, it's because you can't pick up a newspaper without there being some story on the front page about a great hack that just happened. Uh, in fact, one of, the, one of the stats that I used in my presentation today uh, was the number of Canadians that have had their data exposed uh, in one year. So there's a, a report that the Privacy Commissioner did and uh, between November... 2018 and October 2019, so less just a little less than one year, over 28 million Canadians uh, were affected by a data breach. Wow. That's almost everybody. Yeah. Right? So that just gives you a sense of the scope of the problem. Now, I'd mentioned that we do research, and one of the things that we did is we partnered with a company called Ipsos, uh, which is you know, probably one of the largest polling firms uh, in the world, um, to do a global survey of what this meant for people's trust in the internet and trust in the platform. And surprise, surprise, um, over 50% of people are more concerned now than they ever have been about their data and about their privacy. So we're also seeing this, this, this shift. People are waking up to this stuff. And so you see an erosion of trust at the individual, individual level. And that's point number one. Point number two is that there's an erosion of trust between states. And this one's actually a little bit more dangerous because you're starting to see countries behave in really aggressive ways in cyberspace. Um, and uh, there's a waning of trust between states, which is actually quite dangerous. Um, the example that I used, probably the clearest example uh, in Canada, is um, the, the ongoing discussions about banning Huawei. Uh, from the 5G backbone. And I, I don't need to belabor the point uh, for this audience because I'm sure most people have heard of it. But the, the broader issue that I raised is Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican, and Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat, sent Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, a letter uh, imploring him not to let uh, Huawei into the 5G network in Canada. Um, that's the first time I've seen a Republican and a Democrat agree on anything in a little while. But this is the, the, the broader issue is that this stuff is, is deeply geopolitical between, uh, between states. And so, um, we're seeing that erosion of trust as well. And so I talked a little bit about that kind of, uh, as my opening point to say that this stuff is not academic. It's happening right now and it's real. 
There must be a, a lot of changes happening in this field as we have this sort of unbelievable explosion of data everywhere right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like some time ago we were really concerned about how do we collect data. Now it's like, how do we use it? How do we observe it? How do we make sense of all of this, these gobs of data that we have? Mm-hmm. How is that impacting uh, all of these issues around cybersecurity? Well, I mean, so you're right. There's a lot more data um, and um, a lot more exposure. Um, so uh, the examples that came to mind most recently, Life Labs, they got hacked. Um, 15 million Canadians were exposed there and uh, sensitive medical data. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, try and think of something more sensitive or more important to you than your medical test results, something mm. more intimate. Yeah. Mm. You have a real hard time coming up with something, right? Yeah. Then you have um, uh, Capital One. You got 6 million Canadians exposed. Desjardins, 2 million, 2.9 million Canadians exposed. Well, that's all their financial records. Right. Again, try and think of something more, per- more deeply personal than your, fi- your, fi- your, your personal finances. And then imagine for a second that you were a victim of both. Right, mm-hmm. that your your personal health records are floating around out there, and your financial records. Like you can't you can't know more about more about a person, right? And so, so the broader point that I, I made is: look, we're we're hooking everything we can up to the internet, and we're doing that because it creates wealth, it creates efficiency, and it creates uh, streamlined service delivery. So it makes good sense. But on the flip side, we're also creating vulnerability. And, you know, if you believe what we're saying about there's this being a data-driven economy um, and the, the principal value uh, that accrues in many companies is about intangible assets. So things like intellectual property is more valuable now than ever before. Things like data are more valuable now than ever before. Um, if you believe all that, then it makes you wonder um, about a paradox, we're hooking everything we can up to the internet because it creates wealth and all that's the good stuff that I talked about, but it also creates a huge threat vector. And so we're effectively building vulnerability into the core of our economic model. And, you know, that's, that's okay as long as you've got a strategy for how to deal with it. And so the problem that I, that I raised in my discussions um, with your colleagues from around uh, the government of Canada today was that the way we're structured actually makes it difficult for us to get our heads around this in a coherent way because there's, um, I mean, in Ottawa, there's probably 12 or 15 departments that have some some responsibility for this, right? So if you mm-hmm. think about cybersecurity, I mean, is it is it a issue for public safety? Is it for CSIS? Is it uh, because we're talking about the innovation economy? Is, is it about, is it ISED? Is it about procurement and public works? Is it na- a national resource or research council? Is it about the, for the RCMP? Is it solely for CSE and the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity? Oh, because it's foreign affairs, should global affairs be there? Well, of course, the answer is all of the above and then some. And so we've got this, this nuanced, uh, this nuanced set of, of actors in this space that all have departmental mandates and cybersecurity, the innovation economy and the data driven economy cuts across all of them. And so as an outsider looking in, one of the things I wanted to chat a little bit about is how we're working together, how we're collaborating across these Westminsterian uh, type of departmental silos because the fact is is that this this problem doesn't respect disciplinary mandates it doesn't That's respect right. departmental boundaries um, and it doesn't care what was in the minister's mandate letter right like it's it cuts across all mm-hmm. of those and I wondered how we're dealing with that across government but then I also wonder right if we're there's an international layer uh, there's a federal layer a provincial layer a municipal layer 
private sector needs to be involved. And there's also uh, a bit of an issue around how we set technical standards and how are we working across government, but how are we working up and down that stack, starting at the international level, federal, provincial, municipal, and the private sector? And do we have a coherent framework in this country to address this stuff? Because make no mistake, look, there's adversarial states out there. Um, there's bad actors and they are super cagey, extremely well-coordinated and very smart. And I just wondered out loud whether or not we've got the right structures in place to be able to effectively deal with this issue. So I don't know if you guys got the answer for that, but if you do, I'm sure your <laughs> listeners would love to hear. Sure. What would you say are some of the things that uh, senior leaders in government should have top of mind around this right now? Like, what are some of the forward-thinking ways the government can start to try and address some of this? How can we participate? Yeah, well, and that's a good question. And, and uh, look, I don't have, I don't pretend to have all the answers to this type of stuff. And uh, my opening or observation is that this is incredibly complicated, right? So you do need specialists. And I mean, I appreciate in, in the civil service that there is, we do a lot of rotational stuff and we have a lot of generalists, but one might want to think about how you build specialized capacity in these areas because it's not something that it's very easy to dabble in. Um, you really do need to be um, expert in them um, because there's a lot of pieces moving around um, that you're going to have to keep your eye on. Um, so that's maybe kind of observation number one. Observation number two is that this is not a problem of government or governments. It's a problem of governance, right? It's a multi-stakeholder thing. And so, you know, usually when we think of cybersecurity, we, um, there's, a, there's a national security stack that deals with those issues. Um, but how does one engage with the private sector um, that are the most vulnerable to these attacks and are the, are the principal uh, recipients of the attacks, right? So, look, I, I've got a lot of time for uh, the folks at CSE, um, uh, and they do, they do good work there. But how do, how do we build a culture of engagement, uh, of multi-stakeholder engagement in stuff that's been traditionally considered national, uh, NATSEC? It's all been national security stuff, right. right? So there's, there's an interplay that we need to think about there as well, right? It's interesting. Um, Whenever we have these shows and we start talking, uh, you know, outside of just the box uh, or, or the bigger, larger box around innovation, which is our, our main theme for this podcast series, uh, and come down to uh, some of the real uh, meteor topics. And the common theme has always been, how do we identify the skill sets and competencies that we need and bring them in and retain them uh, seems to be sort of thing is how do we find the folks that can help us through this? For sure. And and I mean, there's it's it's hard because there's an interplay between um, what we've traditionally thought of as discrete areas, right? Like there was a Department of Industry and they did industry stuff. And there's a, you know, then there's a national security apparatus and they deal with the national security stuff. And then mm -hmm. you've got, you know, your war fighters that deal with stuff overseas and, 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 and that type of conflict. And the problem, of course, is all this stuff has collapsed on, on on itself now, right? Like, there's no distinction between national security and economic prosperity anymore, right? They run hand they run hand in hand, and and you don't got to take my word for it, right? So I quoted the director of um, of CSIS in his public remarks during my conversation today, right? Um, and he said that economic espionage represents a long term threat to Canada's economy and to our prosperity. And when he made that set of remarks, um, he based his assessment on, and this is a quote, a trend of state-sponsored espionage in fields that are crucial to Canada's ability to build and sustain a prosperous, knowledge-based economy, including uh, areas such as AI, quantum technology, 5G, biopharma, and clean tech. 
So if you think about that, then what we're really talking about is the, the core building blocks of a knowledge economy. We're talking about Canadian national prosperity, how we're going to pay our taxes, build our roads, send our kids to school and fund our hospitals. Like that's, that's the nature of the conversation that we're having. And he goes on and he says um, that uh, owing to the highly sophisticated nature of these efforts, the reality is that adversarial nations are targeting, and this is a quote, the very foundation of Canada's future economic growth. So if you, if you believe that, then the question immediately becomes, how are we responding as a country? Yeah. Um, and if you don't have a coherent framework for how you're responding in a very strategic and very smart way, I'd want to hear a really good reason why. Um, and so that's that's really kind mm. of the, where the goalposts have shifted to, that, that security uh, stuff and economics and trade and foreign affairs and innovation policy, they're all now in one, one layer. Um, it's all mixed together um, because of the way that the data-driven economy and the knowledge-based economy works. And for what it's worth, the way that, that our adversaries are behaving. Yeah. Where do you start trying to solve such a huge problem? Because... You talked about there's a lot of questions. You don't have a lot of answers. You know, is there an answer? All this data being put online, it's it's it is about making money, but it's also about convenience. And I can't imagine that anyone, any Canadian, would be satisfied thinking, "Well, you know, I'll just have to do without online banking from now on because I can't have the possibility that someone will figure out some way to circumvent the security because I don't know their server patches are behind or there's some undiscovered flaw." In some uh, open stack, open source stack that they're using to to run their website with, and you know they've gotten in, they've downloaded a big tarball of you know every account that was on the system. Mm-hmm. Where do you start uh, to to try to mount a defense when the world has changed? You know, software is always in a constant state of movement, so there are always new bugs and and things being introduced into any sort of a code push. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe there's there's two observations that I'd make. Um, one is that we've got this system where we're rushing buggy, buggy stuff to the market. Um, and maybe we need to think about that a little bit um, because uh, putting um, problematic code or unpatched systems or whatever that story is out is just increasing our vulnerability. But um, I don't think you can discount the importance of technical standards. And every time I talk about technical standard setting, I can literally watch people's eyes glaze over. So for your listeners, if uh, if they listen to this podcast at uh, in the evenings, this will probably put them to sleep. <laughs> but, you know, it's not just about ones and zeros, but rather setting technical standards is the stuff of, of deep geopolitics. And, and what I mean by that is... Um, countries are moving to try and sway standard-setting bodies to adopt their own standards around stuff like facial recognition. Um, and so one can very clearly see that there's going to be some privacy concerns around that, some transparency issues, and, and basically bedrock kind of human rights about how this technology is going to be utilized, what it's going to be used for. There's also a push to create technical standards around cybersecurity. So a friend of mine, uh, he uh, runs uh, something called the CIO Strategy Council, and they're trying to build a a technical standard for small and medium-sized enterprises around cybersecurity so that they can be certified cyber safe. So if you um, got in an elevator today 
you would look and there would be a stamp from something. I think it's CSA, the Canadian Standards Authority. And there's a standard around how big the cables need to be on an elevator and how much weight they can handle. And you, everyone's seen no more than 12 people. There is a technical standard around the safety of that elevator. Let me ask you guys, have you ever been worried that the elevator is going to drop from the top floor to the bottom and the cables aren't going to work? No, and you never hear of it happening. You never hear of it happening. There's a technical standard. There's a reason behind that. There's a third-party validation to make sure the stuff's safe. Now, go back to what I said about the importance of the digital economy, right? If we're going to make sure that our elevators are safe, why wouldn't we want to make sure that the stuff that we're hooking up to the internet's safe? We don't do that, but we probably should. There should be so there should be a standard process around this type of stuff. Now, there's another point that's probably worth mentioning here as well. So standards are not technically neutral, right? They they reflect the wills and interests of various parties, and it happens at the highest level, um, and it is deeply geopolitical. So countries are trying to push their own their own tech into the standards. Why? Well, influence, power, all the regular stuff that countries like to do. But there's something a little bit deeper. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of something called a standard essential patent before. But it's what happens when you can get your intellectual property into a technical standard that then needs to be adopted by others. It becomes cash for life because they need to adhere to the standard. And in order to adhere to the standard, they got to pay you a royalty, right? So people aren't dumb. This is what's happening right now uh, in this space. And so we need to think coherently about how we how we engage in a strategic way as well, because that's what's happening around the world, right? Do you think that that uh, this sort of intellectual property, proprietary software being introduced into something is actually making it more difficult to make sure that these products are safe, as opposed to an open source de- or an open source development model where everything's out there, anyone in the world can be looking at it. You know, many different corporations that feel like they have a stake in it could be putting some of their employees on actually looking for vulnerabilities here, whereas. If a corporation realizes that, you know, our cash cow is going to disappear, if, if they find out that there's this number of critical vulnerabilities in this, you know, essential software we've injected into the system, where's their motivation to, uh, to be really transparent? Mm-hmm. You know? No, that's a big one for sure. Obviously, um, proprietary, um, technology within companies to, to on your your stuff and how they do uh, data management and what they do with data is something that's closely held right that's yeah. the secret sauce um, and it's not going to people aren't going to give it up lightly and maybe I'll just uh, I, so I agree with you 100% and let me add one additional uh, flavor to this discussion which sure. is what happens when AI becomes more ubiquitous right so you've got a data stack right? Then you've got a proprietary algorithm chewing on the data stack to come up with some decision. And my my supposition is that the decisions that we're going to allow artificial intelligence, um, and I'm going to use that term loosely here, but Hmm. the the decisions that we're going to uh, be powered by algorithms and machine learning and deep learning um, are going to become more important in our in our world, not less important. So, um, you know, you've heard of trial uh, trial uses in bail court to determine if someone's eligible for bail. Mm. You've heard of uh, uses where people are are determined for eligibility for credit based on uh, based on an algorithmic access assessment. What happens when those important decisions are being made um, and we don't know about the black box? 
We don't know about how the data was used. Yeah. We don't know about the decision-making vector of the algorithm. And we've got no ability to verify the veracity. And let's just pause there for a moment and think of a real-world example, okay? So we'll use bail court because that, that's the one. So, you know, you've, uh, let's say, uh, for example, Todd, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not accusing you of anything here, but okay. let's say um, you were out going to, into the parking lot and there was a, a car that had a smashed window. Uh, you were walking by and the police came and arrested you because uh, uh, somebody fitting your description had been described as smashing the window in the car. And yeah. you, you go to bail court and then all of a sudden the, there's a decision being made to determine whether or not you are free pending trial because you're effectively innocent and put until proven guilty or whether or not you're remanded to custody, i.e. you go to jail until your trial comes. So you could be sitting there for... A year. A year, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. right? This is a big deal, right? So make don't don't make don't make light of the circumstance. I know we're 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 joshing around here, but yeah. this is this is a big uh, a big decision. Okay, so an algorithm cranks it out and says, well, no, I mean you wear glasses, and my algorithm assessment says that people who wear glasses are more likely to uh, for for purposes of recidivism are more likely to offend, and therefore you're uh, denied bail. Okay, so we don't necessarily know how that decision would be made. We don't know how the tra- we don't. Know, there's no transparency around it. Just take your no, glasses off. Yeah, <laughs> just take your glasses off. And there's no there's no way to verify the, the the decision vector. Okay, so in the real world, what will happen is that a judge will make that call. There'll be a record of the decision and the reasons behind the, why the decision was made, and then you can appeal it. And this is the part that we're missing in this conversation is how do you, how are we going to appeal those decisions that are being made by algorithms if they're proprietary, if you can't see in the black box. Mm-hmm. And if you believe with what I'm saying, that the decisions are going to be more important, not less important, we're going to have to get our, our heads around that pretty soon. Thank you very much, Aaron. This has been really fascinating. Yeah, cool. I think my favorite takeaway from this whole conversation is is going to be, it's not a government problem, it's a governance yeah. issue. That's, yeah. a, that's a really that's powerful a statement. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Innovate on Demand, brought to you by the Canada School of Public Service. Our music is by Grapes. I'm Todd Lyons, producer of this series. Thank you for listening.